Prime Minister says the aid budget could be used for defence-related operations. But what does that mean for the forces? An American security firm believes it's found a major source of cyber attacks, the Chinese military. It's a new era. Trying to figure out how to deal with these cyber threats is, is difficult, even from a diplomatic standpoint. And why British soldiers are training in extreme conditions in the Arctic. David Cameron says the government is ready to consider spending money from the aid budget on peacekeeping and other defence-related operations. The Prime Minister said he had to demonstrate that aid was being spent wisely and security was often needed before any development could take place. Well, I'm joined, as usual, by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Uh, what this is this all about, exactly? Right. One thing it's not about, and that's the MOD suddenly getting part of the, the, the overseas development money, which is £10 billion a year. It's not getting it. You can say, "Wow, oh, that's great. We can we can we can get another squadron of Apaches." It's nothing to do with that. It is very simple. The uh, the overseas aid budget is about 0.7 percent of the national income. Justine uh, Greening, who is the um, who is the secretary of um, uh, overseas aid, has found it very difficult to justify spending that money. Now, if you go off, let's say, uh, hypothetically, you send a C-130 full of soldiers to do a peacekeeping job in, let's say, Sierra Leone. Who pays for the fuel? Comes out, let's say, of the RF budget. Comes out of the defence budget. And what they're saying, or what they're thinking about, uh, is getting together in something which is going to be called, or really is already called, the conflict pool. That's run by the Foreign Office, uh, DFID, which is the Overseas Aid, and the MOD. And they say, well, look, when you send people there, it doesn't come out of the day-to-day -day operational budget of the MOD. So the MOD doesn't get any more money. But they but might it, not get it, as much in the way it, as, as it saves, expenses. It saves money. The problem is what happens, for example, in mission creep. So you send somebody to some, you know, to peacekeeping, and they say, right, the fix-it date is three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. Do you still get that money out of Justine Greening's budget? The answer, probably no. That's the conflict. And that's why when it was tried about 18 years ago, it didn't work. But it's a good start because it, what it does mean, the most important thing, it means that these people are not operating separately. So no more money for the MOD, but somebody paying some of the bills if you're involved in peacekeeping, stabilisation and, and prevention. Well, defence budgets are likely to be somewhere on the agenda at the NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels, which begins today. Our reporter Rob Olver is there. Hello, Rob. What's on the agenda today? Well, uh, defence ministers from all 28 NATO member countries, including Britain's Defence Secretary Philip Hammond, are here. So too as a man who thought he'd been to his last NATO meeting, but defense, U.S. Defence Secretary Leon Panetta has been forced back to Brussels while politicians argue about his successor today. He and his fellow ministers are discussing the Connected Forces Initiative, which aims to build on the experience of international operations and improve how NATO countries operate together. Defence capabilities and planning processes are also being examined, but the big question is how to pay for it all. This morning, in a rebuke to a large government, Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen called for a halt to defence cuts. Reduced defence spending, he warned, put populations at risk. So that's Certainly food for thought for ministers here. And is stronger speaking on this matter so far. Um, it continues tomorrow, doesn't it? And I understand Afghanistan will be discussed. 
Yes, that's right. And there'll be a briefing from the new ISAF commander, General Joseph Dunford, but expect no decisions yet on the scope and size of NATO's training mission after international combat troops leave in 2014. The Secretary General says we'll have to wait a few months longer, perhaps until one-day summit here in Brussels in June. If a mini-summit did happen, it would officially mark Afghans taking charge of their own security throughout the country. 87% of the population is already under Afghan security control. Okay, Rob Olver in Brussels there. We'll leave it. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Christopher, as Rob was saying there, Leon Panetta is there because there's no US Defence Secretary to replace him yet. There's no new US Supreme Allied Commander Europe because uh, General John Allen has said he's retiring. Um, what's going on at the top of American defence? Uh, what's happening is it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess, right. So you've got uh, General John Allen, who was going to be uh, Sakia. Uh, he got involved originally in the sex scandal with David Petraeus, another general uh, who was running the CIA at the time. Um, and then he was cleared of that, but now there are personal problems. So up until about three weeks ago, he was going down uh, He was going down to be secure. He just said, oh, I don't think I can do it now. You better get somebody else. So they get somebody else. Petraeus, in the meantime, is sitting around thinking about spending more time with his memoirs. So he's out. <laughs> Chuck Hagel, who is the defence secretary or that's how uh, uh, President Obama would like him to be. He says some daft things about Israel. So the lobby in the Republican Party in the Senate that has to confirm the, the President's wishes said, we're going to hold back on this. So Chuck Hagel, who'd got his his return ticket to Brussels for this meeting, says, but I'm going to Brussels. And they said, no, 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 you're not. It's, it's, it's a bit of a mess. It'll get sorted out. But the other thing to remember, the big issues at this meeting that uh, Rob's, Rob's at at the moment, like... You've got to spend 2% on defence. Interesting, Britain and America are the only people who are actually spending that sort of amount, and that's what Chuck Hagel's got to sort out when he gets in there, uh, because the Americans are going to have some big defence cuts. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the truth about war are today's reporters telling the full story, and if not, why not? And why a British helicopter squadron is training in the Arctic. PFBS Sit rep. The Prime Minister's been on a three-day visit to India with a British trade delegation. David Cameron urged the Indian government to open up to British businesses. He also asked the Indian authorities to reconsider their decision to buy French fighter jets instead of part British Eurofighter typhoons. Andrew North is the BBC's South Asian correspondent and joins us now from Delhi. Andrew, good to speak to you today. You covered this visit for the BBC. Was it a successful trip for David Cameron? He got some good headlines, uh, Kate, and uh, this word special relationship that we'd previously only heard uh, about uh, Britain's relationship with the, U with the US was being talked about in relation to India. Uh, so there was a lot of feel-good stuff, meeting Bollywood actors, uh, the uh, industry chiefs you talked about, this big delegation, were meeting lots of other businessmen. But um, from talking to quite a lot of Indians here, they still feel that... Uh, it doesn't add up to a lot. Uh, since David Cameron came here two and a half years ago, just after he became Prime Minister, when he den then talked about India being a priority, uh, the hope was that trade would have increased a lot more by, by now. Uh, it still lags behind Belgium, not just uh, Germany. And so despite all the, the, the cultural links... Oh, it does appear we have a problem there. We've lost Andrew North. To, who've been dealing with the Prime Minister saying uh, there's still a lack of focus. They don't really know what the British want to do here.
Uh, we lost the middle part of that, Angie, but we will we will carry on regardless. Um, what about uh, this uh, request by David Cameron to reconsider the buying of French fighter jets? Well, it's interesting, that one, because this has been going on for a long time. Uh, it was last year that the Indian government announced they were going to give the contract uh, for new generation uh, warplanes to the French. Since then, uh, the final deal has still not been signed. And in fact, the French president was here just last week, just before David Cameron. The deal still wasn't signed. So that's le left a lot of people thinking there's still a chance. Um, but the British have to tread very carefully here because uh, they, the, the, the reaction when they first uh, failed to get the contract last year did not go down well in, here in India. Uh, there was quite a lot of criticism from conservative MPs. So they're having to tread very carefully while at the same time clearly being desperate to win the contract. Um, the other thing that has complicated things, though, is that uh, there's been another corruption scandal that blew up just before David Cameron got here over another arms deal. Um, this is buying helicopters from an Italian company, which also has a British link. Uh, this is Westland. The Westland company has an involvement in the contract. So it's not a good time to be uh, trying to, to do arms deals here. And uh, David Cameron, I think, in some ways, was quite glad not to get uh, too heavily sucked into that because it's causing a lot of difficult headlines for the Indian government here. And Christopher, how well do you think the visit's gone? As far as, the, as, far as defence is concerned, uh, I don't think they've moved any further. And it was quite embarrassing in some ways that the Indian Prime Minister, Prime Minister Singh, uh, uh, mentioned this, this corruption charge. And it's, it's, it's really for, uh, for 12 uh, AW-101s helicopters, you know, it's a whole squadron of them. And the uh, Italian guy, who's at the, uh, the Italian end of it, uh, Giuseppe Orsi, he's been nicked by the, uh, by the, by the Rome police. And so... Uh, uh, it's all about allegations that... that ah, that Mr Singh said, listen, this, all this, we've got to sort this corruption thing. We really don't like corruption in India. And there was a straight face from Prime Minister uh, uh, Cameron who said, no, I hope everything's going to be sorted out about that. But the most important thing is, in, in some ways, is, is Cameron's own vision of what can be done with India. Uh, and we come back to something we were talking exactly? well something we were talking about earlier on that's actually giving aid to a country that's got a space program and in his on uh, Cameron's back benches they say why are we giving aid to a country that's got uh, a space program that's got more billionaires than we've got etc and that's part of this whole debate of how you view um, um, how you view authority in other countries but there's one thing that they d did get round to talking about apparently and that's this when you want to get a solution in Afghanistan, not just by 2014, but the future, the countries you have to think about are Pakistan, you have to think about India, and you have to mm. think about the Central Asian Republics. So that's where the visit may not have a short-term effect, but could have a much longer-term effect. And looking back to the past, Andrew, this almost apology, but not quite, about the massacre by British forces in Amritsar in 1919. Um, how was that taken? Well, I think the first thing to say is that uh, there was certainly no demand from the Indian government for an apology. They weren't expecting it. There were some relatives of those killed in the Amritsar massacre who, who hoped that would come. Um, so I think there's a, a feeling here that that apology, or, or whatever you want to call it, expression of remorse, was much more for domestic UK consumption. And in, indeed, from talking to people here uh, linked with the Prime Minister's delegation, they were saying, you know, the, the choice of Amritsar was initially, to go to Amritsar was initially about... Uh, 
solidifying the link with the many people of Punjabi origin in the UK, and therefore, because they were in Amritsar, they had to say something about the massacre. But uh, uh, it also, because it got plenty of headlines here, it drew attention to the many other instances there have been uh, uh, of uh, alleged uh, British atrocities uh, during uh, its history here. And one in particular that uh, people was, were talking about was the Bengal famine that happened just four years before the end of uh, British rule here in 1943, when um, as many as three million people may have died. Now, uh, it's still disputed, but uh, British actions and indifference is seen to have played a role in those very large numbers of deaths. But there was no apology or expression of remorse from that. So I think, right. in the end, this also shows you how difficult and uh, it can be to start going down the road of apologising for past actions. All right, Andrew Noll, stay with us. Next month, it'll be ten years since the invasion of Iraq, which heralded perhaps a new era in the way conflicts are reported. It was the first time that journalists were regularly invited to join the armed forces and theatre under a system known as being embedded. But of According to the host of a debate at the influential organisation, the Frontline Club, last night, that arrangement is having a knock-on effect on independent reporting with far-reaching consequences. That person is Vaughan Smith, the former Grenadier Guard and founder of the Frontline Club, and he joins us now. Vaughan, hello. Um, how hello. do you think the so-called embed has affected reporting in places like Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, I think it hasn't served us well at all, um, and I think it's time to review it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's just of too great a public importance to, uh, to get this right. And I, I think the core of the problem is there's um, a, an expectation within the military, the British military, uh, that they should be able to control the media more than realistically, I think, is, is in the public interest. I mean, uh, for example, I mean, at the moment, um, uh, media communications in the military, you've spent £33 million last year. There are 100 press offers. There's a sort of control freakery going on, and I think it's going to come unstuck. And yet you, you could argue that there have been developments in other areas, for example, the use of head cam filming in, in series like Our War, the mobile phone footage that makes it onto our screens that's come from the Arab Spring, from people on the ground, and that's given unprecedented access. Uh, yes, it has, um, but it's, it's bereft of enough uh, proper um, uh, grown-up critical journalism. I mean, there's a tendency, for example, to get uh, local journalists involved, regional journalists, and who, who aren't necessarily going to be as critical, or commentators who aren't necessarily going to be critical. And, and I think we need to look at the public interest. There are a lot of soldiers I speak to, and I speak to a lot, who are uncomfortable with this because there's a perception that, that media communications is serving the minister, serving the political master, um, rather better than it's serving the army. Andrew North, what experience do you have of the embed and indeed not being embedded? And what do you think produces the best war reporting? Well, I think the first thing to say about this is that um, embeds, to some extent, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, have become a necessary evil um, because uh, it has become much harder uh, to cover those conflicts because journalists themselves have become more of a target. And yet, at the same time, I've covered both Iraq and Afghanistan uh, largely unembedded, but having to be uh, perhaps much more cautious about uh, my security. What you get from embeds is a, is a snapshot, and I think it's important to always see it in, the, in that sense. Covering Iraq um, from the time of the invasion, uh, by being embedded, I was embedded during the invasion with US Marines, um, 
that would that allowed me to provide one snapshot of what was happening in one particular place in the in the war um, i never attempt i never said that that was then uh, gave the whole picture and if you can see it in that context it is it is uh, perhaps acceptable i think that, that what's changed is that embedding has become much more common uh, it's on a much greater scale and uh, perhaps it has increasingly perhaps in, in afghanistan pushed out uh, some of the unembedded reporting and that certainly uh, there's a big danger in that and also it means that the military has a lot more control over what uh, we as journalists do. Christopher, I suppose there's a difficult compromise here, isn't there? How do you get the balance right between truthful, insightful, insightful reporting and uh, being on an embed and not endangering the lives of British troops or indeed undermining the mission? Absolutely. I mean, when you go back to the origins, the origins of this, after the after the Falklands War in in, in 1982, um, soldiers uh, and reporters were together. Also, the navy was because they were trapped down in the South Atlantic in Hermes and uh, Invincible. They couldn't get their stuff back because there were no communications, etc. After that war, there was a, a committee set up under Murray Stewart, who was an assistant undersecretary at MOD, and they said, look, we've got to rethink this because what's happening is this. We imagine that if there were to be a war between the Soviet Union and, and NATO forces, that reporters would go to media centres and they'll be told what to say. But they recognised that new technologies were happening. And so what would happen if you had, and then later we got them, mobile telephones, you didn't have to go to the media centres. You could just actually say what you'd done. So therefore, the idea of embedding started, started out. But when you go to 1991, the first Gulf War in Dahran, where the media centre was, it was like a blooming holiday camp. Hmm. I mean, people were there and they were trapped around the swimming pool almost and the, and the press releases come, came out. And so when you get people like Bob Fisk of the Times going it alone, he was seen as a maverick, not simply by the military, but by a lot of his own colleagues. And there you have the conflict. Andrew's done it as almost as the maverick, of sort of going around saying, this is what I see, this is what I report. Next time, he's got to be trapped in the embedment system. Vaughan Smith, do you think that same choice is still there to actually go it alone? I mean, you've done that, haven't you? Oh, yes. I mean, I mean you, you always, you're always going to need the unilateral, as the military call them, or the independent. I mean, it's essential. Um, you know, I, you, you can't just rely on organised journalism. You know, it's a beauty of journalism. But what, one thing I think we're getting wrong on this conversation is it, this matter is no longer really about operational security. Journalists aren't out there trying to reveal our, our secrets in that way. They don't want to get a, a, a soldier killed or anything like that. That's not the issue of friction. The issue of friction is the manner in which the military are spending all this money, and they've got a hundred press officers. I really don't know why they need so many. Uh, and it's a, it's a news management effort. It's, it's, it, it, it really focuses on the reporting of casualties. It's about keeping the, the public behind the war, and I think that's a step too far. That's, that, it's, it's ultimately not an honest use of public money. All right. Vaughan Smith, Andrew North, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS Sit this week, the European Union has given the green light to British plans to send security and civilian military trainers to Syria to assist rebel fighters. It wasn't quite what Foreign Secretary William Hague had in mind, though. He'd called for a lift to the current EU sanctions that prevent any form of military support to the rebels. But the idea was blocked by more than 20 countries. Uh, what's gone on here, Christopher? 
Well, basically, if you, you, you go back a couple of months to a meeting that took place in Morocco where a uh, hundred uh, nations gathered and they say, what are we going to do? We're going to recognize the rebels as the government in waiting. And that's so we've come down on their side. We are against Assad, etc. The Foreign Office or the British government has sort of gone a stage further. And they have said that along with Saudi Arabia, by the way, we're trying to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, along with Saudi Arabia, who wants to sell weapons to or give weapons to the rebels and Qatar, uh, we think that's a very good idea. I mean, it's nothing to do with the fact we supporting them because we want to sell weapons to them. Uh, so th that's, that's it. The EU, though, says, now, hang on. Uh, we look at the disparate nature of those rebels. It would be wrong to actually give them uh, weapons to do what with. And then you get the other side of it. There's a meeting today in Cairo, for example, uh, trying to sort out what the future arrangements will be for discussions. Now, you've got the rebels saying, uh, we will not... Uh, have discussions about the future with uh, President Assad. That's seen as by the by everybody else. Now, listen, uh, if they won't do that, then we're not going to get anywhere, are we? And that's not true, because under that is the rebels are now being coached around by the Russians to say, OK, you say you won't discuss things with Assad, but... How about discussing things while Assad remains in power, but with other people? The British come in, the uh, British Foreign Secretary comes in and says, I really cannot say any more about this until next week when the new American Secretary of State arrives in London, and that's John Kenney, ex-Senator John Kenney. Uh, Kerry, he'll come here and he'll tell us what I'm thinking. All right, stay with us, Christopher. The Chinese military has denied any involvement in global computer hacking. It was responding to a report by American security firm Mandiant, which claims it's traced one of the world's most prolific cyber espionage groups to a Chinese army unit in Shanghai. Dang McWhorter is their head of intelligence. We work closely with GCHQ, as well as obviously our, the US government. I think they're doing a lot. I, th I think they're doing what they can, and they're advancing the game. It's a new era. Trying to figure out how to deal with these cyber threats is, is difficult, even from a diplomatic standpoint. When do you call someone out? When do you present them with your evidence? How do you get them to stop? Uh, Christopher, um, is it a massive threat, this? Is it true what they found exactly? Because the Chinese are denying it. Who do we believe? Uh, we believe both of them. I mean, they're not doing it as they necessarily say they're doing it. Now, the Chinese have got an operation which runs from a, um, not far from Shanghai, and it's a, it's a complex of, uh, of cyber monitoring, right? It's called Unit 61398. And Unit 61398 is the centre. It's rather like our GCHQ, but it's entirely on uh, cyber hacking. What are they looking for? Uh, they're looking for things that we might not consider at the first place. in the first place. They're looking for uh, financial policies. They're looking for trade policies. It's not all sort of military. And what would they do with them exactly? Well, when they go into a trade negotiation, for example, as is happening at the moment with the United States uh, and China, where there's an imbalance, i.e. the Chinese are exporting more to the Americans than the Americans are exporting to China, and the Americans say, for these reasons, uh, we want to uh, discuss this with you. The Chinese reckon that if they go into the cyber attacking business, they'll better read the emails. They'll know exactly what the Americans are going to, their position is going to be before they turn up. 
in Beijing. And notably, aerospace companies have been particularly hit, according to the reports I've read on this. Absolutely, because that they also find out what you're, what the, how you're trading with other people. I have to say, we're doing exactly the same yes, thing. Yes, I was about to ask that. And we've got we've got six one three nine eight in a different form in the, in the Where's United that, Christopher? And we're, and we're rather good at it, actually. And there's a story knocking around also that there's been some unprecedented access to the Communist Party leader with all kinds of footage emerging of him meeting members of the public. Is that some kind of PR exercise? It's going out on the Chinese version of Twitter, isn't it? Because Twitter's banned in China. Uh, yeah, it is going out. It will be stopped very, very shortly. Really? Uh, so yeah, it's not sanctioned, but sort of on the quiet by the leadership. It's all, yeah, um, but don't forget, this is a new leadership. It's, it's thinking, and this leadership is only a few months old, and it's going to be for the, for the next ten days. It's a very powerful leadership for the first time, and for the first time, it understands these new technologies. And every so often, they've got people who will actually use this new technology to boost the image of, of, of the Chinese leader without the people who are supposed to be following around actually getting close enough to give him one. A Lynx helicopter squadron from the Army Air Corps has been learning how to survive in the most extreme climates. The soldiers from 659 Squadron have deployed from Dishforth in Yorkshire to Arctic Norway as part of training to ensure they can operate anywhere in the world. BF, BF's reporter Julie Knox has been to see what they do and she joins us now. Hello, Julie. Hi, um, Kate. What exactly were they doing there and why? Well, I was 200 miles inside the Arctic Circle in northern Norway. You can fly to a place called Bardefoss and you'll find a British military training base on a Norwegian army camp there and the squadron I was with uh, is also deployed out into the real wild that is having to live in snowy fields and fly their Lynx Mark 7 helicopters over icy mountains and fire the machine gun into these remote valleys. In fact it's actually a centre that's been used by the British for decades and largely trains those from Joint Helicopter Command including Royal Navy Sea King pilots and their air crew plus some of our ships deliver supplies to a port nearby and uh, the hardy Royal Marines they do those uh, bonkers um, cold weather survival courses in that extreme cold. Yeah, I saw you shivering in the tents on the TV reports this week. Um, what did you get to do apart from that? Well, thankfully, no ice-breaking drills and jumping into freezing water for me. But, uh, yeah, the Army Air Corps needs this sort of tick-in-the-box training. Um, they're about to go, this Squadron 659, onto an R2 commitment, which is a state of readiness and alert, really, that they'll be held at for the next number of months. And uh, it's sort of five days' notice to move in anywhere in the world. Uh, the theory is that if everybody is environmentally and operationally qualified for the desert with their Afghanistan experience then some of them are also jungle ready. Adding in this extreme cold aspect will mean that they can work across the whole spe spectrum really wherever they may be asked to deploy to. So about 80 men, no women from the squadron first had to go through that bonkers Royal Marines run survival course before Christmas because you can't just camp in tents there. Uh, you can't even touch a helicopter without gloves on or you will leave your fingerprints behind. You need to have a lot of experienced training first of all. So working in such cold conditions, obviously a difficulty. What's the most interesting place you found the aircraft maintainers in? <laughs> well, the Remy guys attached to the squadron got to work in a weird and wonderful place called the Rock Hangar. It's at Bardafoss Airfield. It's a cave hewn into a mountainside by, I'm told, the Germans in World You've War II. You've been there, Christopher, have you? <laughs> it's a very James Bond bad guy lair sort of place with a huge door that folds inwards and lots of lime scale running down the walls. You'll see it on TV tonight. And the hardy Scottish sergeant I interviewed in it said he found it very creepy. <laughs> and the exercise received a pretty important visitor. Who was that? Indeed it did. The Deputy Chief of the Naval Staff is Vice Admiral Philip Jones. He dropped in. He's the fleet commander. And uh, I asked him about the significance, really, of Norway for his service. Well, the Royal Navy, in its different components, has been training up here 
here for many decades now. Uh, Three Commander Brigade Royal Marines have a major training base at Ace Garden just down the coast from here. Our amphibious ships um, regularly come into these waters uh, and practice amphibious assault, both air assault and surface assault. And then, of course, Commando Helicopter Forces clockwork is is the air component of that. Um, We did it for a long time because it was a key part of our Cold War outputs to do that. We had to work alongside our Norwegian allies. Um, But now we use it because it's a fantastic place to train, to operate anywhere in the world. If you can do amphibious air and surface assault here, you can do it pretty well anywhere. Vice Admiral Philip Jones there. And one other interesting fact, Kate, how to get along with the Norwegians you're exercising near to. The helicopters all have a list, would you believe, of local funerals up on their planning no chart. Yeah. I thought you were going to say phrases no. or something like hello and goodbye and how are you. No village <laughs> gets buzzed or overflown if they're burying a member of the community. Oh, that's good to know. Thank Sensitive. You. Julie, informative as ever. Thank you for that. Um, Christopher, um, what we've got coming up next week? Uh, next week is important. It's Kerry's visit to London. That's mm. the new American state, the replacement for Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Um, it won't want to start thinking in terms of what we started with and how do you deal with foreign aid, soft power, in other words, how you cheer up people, how you, you help them with money, but you back it up with, with the military. And you think that will, there will be some statements on that next week, uh, do you? Yeah. Uh, last night he gave his first speech in uh, the University of Virginia, uh, and that was the sort of foretaste of that, and that's going to come up next week. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and to all of our guests. If you have any views on the topics we've covered this week, you can get in touch on our email address, which is sitrep at bfbs.com, or you can tweet us at bfbs.sitrep. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now.